At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, today on Squawk Pod. Picking up the pieces from America's near-miss banking crisis, former IMF chief economist Simon Johnson. This was a massive regulatory and supervisory failure. Maybe a wake-up call, so that might be useful. And the morality of your home office. You also get off the uh, moral high horse with the work from home. What Tesla's leader said about working from home with CNBC's John Ford. My favorite thing about this, though, is that Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, is making an inequality argument. Disney's latest move against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the debt ceiling deal in the balance and what that means for the Fed hitting pause. They get a deal. Maybe you do. If you don't, then they don't. Plus, Twitter's pointing a finger at Microsoft, data, tech engineers, oh, and more Elon Musk. When Elon Musk left, you know, they threw like a party. I mean, it was like, no, no. (laughs) It's Friday, May 19th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, goodbye in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. It's Friday. If you've been checking out Treasury yields, you'll see that right now the 10-year is sitting at 3.63%. Uh, the two years at 4.23%. So some pretty major movement in terms of where we've seen Treasury right. prices. Uh, part of that is because of the data that we got yesterday at 8.30. You saw things moving up then. You've also got uh, thoughts that you will see some sort of a settlement, at least at this point. Both sides are talking, even though they may be far apart, talking as if uh, a default is not something that they are considering. As a result, take a look at short-term treasuries, too, because that's where most of the higher yields have been playing out, uh, concern around that debt ceiling. Uh, One month right now at 5.554%, and believe it or not, that is uh, quite a bit below the highest levels we've seen of 5.7% and north of that. Two years now, all the way back at 5.185%. Andrew? Meantime, talking about that debt ceiling and a potential settlement, let's get you uh, up to date on where the negotiations stand. The White House now saying that The Democrat negotiators are making what they call steady progress in the talks with Republican counterparts and avoiding a U.S. debt default. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, though, saying they are in a much better place than they were just a few days ago. So all uh, systems go in a good way, it seems. The negotiations, though, however, continue as President Biden attends the G7 summit with other world leaders in Japan. He's back on Sunday. Meanwhile, the U.S. Treasury now says the amount of money it has on hand to pay its bills It's now at its lowest level since 2021 at $68.3 billion. The Treasury says that a week ago the balance was almost $155 billion. You can see it sort of shrinking almost by half. You know, the other issue, uh, we started talking about this yesterday on the show too, the comments from the Fed about whether or not a pause is really a pause. Are they going to hike rates at this next meeting, which is coming up pretty quickly. We're getting to the end of May and this is the middle of June we're talking about for the next meeting. But I think you don't, if this, if they, look, if they get a deal, maybe you do. If you don't, then they don't. Uh, That's a, that's a fair point. Uh, Although when, I, I still don't know if Wall Street's baked that idea into the, into the entire cake. That, that, that if the a Fed's deal, not actually done. 
Like if a deal gets done that the Fed may not be done, keep going. you may see rate hikes coming in. But that the playing out, there's it's weird because you are definitely at an inflection point because you're not going to get agreement among the FOMC members when you start talking through. Usually they speak at least a little more in sync. Well, look, it the market like still thinks that a cut is coming eventually. Right. So, right. so I don't know if we don't have we don't have anybody who says a cut is coming. The market says a cut's market coming, yeah. but I don't think anybody who is in Fedland right. thinks that that's even like on the table. So Mohammed Alarian made the point earlier this week that if if that continues, you're going to see either extreme volatility in the markets or the Fed's credibility really be called into question. So we'll see. There's got to be some catch up there. Disney scrapping plans to build a new $1 billion campus in Florida in the latest salvo in the feud between the Magic Kingdom and the Governor DeSantis. Disney says that new leadership and business conditions led the decision that will keep 2,000 jobs from relocating to Southern California to work on digital technology, finance, and product development. The campus would have been located about 20 miles from Walt Disney World. That stock down another 1% to 92.95, and that was a point of contention. One of the Florida officials said yesterday, yeah, if my stock was down that much, I might be rethinking plans too. I think the question becomes, is it because of DeSantis that was the primary reason behind this? Is it cost-cutting moves that they were doing? And by the way, these were plans that were put in place by Chapek, that right. Iger himself well, so may not have uh, What I want to try to understand, though, is what does it do in Florida? Do the, do the taxpayers in Florida say, this is ridiculous, I don't like what the governor's done to Disney, or do they, I think the or bigger, do they say, I support DeSantis in this? I think the bigger question is going to be what it means for fundraising for DeSantis, because right. he is expected to, in the next week or so, declare his run for the presidency. He has had people who have been, Republican donors who have been reluctant to sign on. And, and you can point to a lot and of I different think this reasons makes it, for that. I assume, he declared, right. so. I assume this makes it harder, though. And I also wonder nationally whether people go, okay, he did this to this company. It works for his base, though. I I got to tell you. That's the question. Does it? It gets his base fired up. So I I don't know how it plays in the end. He has had great leeway to do this. And I think at a lot of times the the stances he have taken have been very popular within his base. But maybe not with his own people. It's very peculiar. Let's tell you about this next story. It's, it's fascinating. I, I almost wish that it, this had happened before I had an opportunity to interview Satya because I would have wanted to be able to ask the yeah, question. Yeah, I, I was going to ask for your interpretation. Twitter is accusing Microsoft now of using data from the social media platform in what they say is unauthorized way in a letter to Microsoft. Elon Musk's attorneys laid out claims, including that Microsoft could be in violation of multiple provisions of its agreement with Twitter over data use. A spokesperson, a Microsoft spokesperson telling uh, CNBC that the company will review the letter and respond appropriately. I, I was going to ask you for your interpretation on the Microsoft story. I, I read that a couple of times and I was still a little confused as to what's happening. It, it sounds almost like uh, Twitter's unhappy because Microsoft is refusing to pay for the, the paid version. They just want to stick with the free version from before and where that leaves. I them. am unclear. To, I don't, uh, I don't the, the truth is I was, I, I read it. I didn't fully understand what the argument was, and I don't fully understand how much of this is also part of a larger upset that clearly Elon has had over OpenAI and the OpenAI relationship with Microsoft. That is, that is clearly something that, that, that Elon on our, on, with Faber and, and everybody else has been very, very upset about. And because as, he views it, look, he, just to, to back up a bit for people who haven't followed right. super closely, 
what did he put in originally? A billion dollars or something into OpenAI? Oh no, AI? I think or was it, it was. I think it was. I think it was fifty or hundred million dollars. Okay, well, he, into he put AI. some investment. But he put some money into it early to get it started right. as a not-for-profit, not-for-profit. Or a and nonprofit. And it and it is still a not-for-profit. His view is that it has been co-opted effectively by Microsoft and is now basically owned by Microsoft. I mean, I have to admit that's that what he, I thought the Microsoft deal was when they first announced it. Like, okay, basically, Microsoft is buying this and eventually will become a controlling shareholder. That's, and I, I'm just saying, right. when I read the deal announcement, right. that's what it looked like to me. Um, so I, I get his frustration and concern I'm on that not level. Sure but I, I don't know what the reality is, but that's what, that's what I thought when I read the deal. I think the commercialization of it, by default, yeah. is controlled to some degree by Microsoft, but at some level it still will remain, I mean, the model itself will remain its own entity and will remain a not-for-profit, capped profit, whatever you want to describe that entity as. And I think he he thought when he was starting OpenAI that it was going to be uh, sort of this sort of separate thing that would actually push on the other, the big guys, and wouldn't be partnered with the big guys. The I mean, problem if, if is... that's the case, I understand his the prop. The problem, of course, is that to play with the... To, to, well, first of all, to develop this at this scale, you needed, the, you needed the big guys or you needed the big money, one or the other. And if you weren't going to commercialize it, it was going to be almost impossible to figure out how you would make the economics of that work. Because I the, guess the, I can understand both of those arguments, but I think if I were the person who had put in the initial big funding, I, I guess I'd be mad if I hadn't given Wright a first refusal on... Um, I, we need more money, and we need to find a way to make this work. Maybe. maybe oh, but he, but he, he, he left way. Long. Before. I know he long, left long ago. It's he just, left way before that. I, so I don't I, know. I, just, if you I get can first, understand. I don't know if you get first right of refusal. Yes, I, I can point. still just understand. Like his point was, not only did I put in the funding, but I attracted a lot of the engineers. They came because of me to work on this stuff. So I really got you started. Right. And then I got cut out of the. I think it's a more. Con- I. I I, sure accept that he, I accept that he has that position. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people that are at OpenAI. I don't famously, and I, I don't say this with any. Uh, it doesn't make me happy to say this, and, and by the way, I don't think it makes Sam Altman happy to say this. But when Elon Musk left, you know, they threw like a party. I mean, it was like <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's been published in the Wall Street Journal. Right, I mean, right. It, it was like a known thing. They, they, it was like a very happy day for them. I accept that there's it's so probably it's, much more, more much so more. So I only say it because I think that that he may have attracted some of the engineers, and he clearly put the money in. And I give him enormous credit for for working with Sam Early. I did an interview with both of them years ago together about this uh, at the beginning. So. I feel like I've watched them grow up together and also grow apart together. Yeah. And there were lots of reasons for a lot of it. So. And I, I do accept that it's much more complicated than a surface issue. This um, is a long, long issue. It's a long, long issue. And by the way, he'll have his own version of uh, a large, maybe we'll have a large language model sooner, sooner or later. We'll see. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, regulators, lawmakers, economists, all batting cleanup on America's regional banking crisis this spring. Is it over yet? And what have we learned so far? MIT professor Simon Johnson joins us. The legal responsibility was there, the political support was there, and, and what did the, the relevant people do? They, they backed away from regulating and supervising these, these mid-sized regional banks. And now we have a major problem. So that's a lesson learned. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. 
and the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. This week, the House and Senate heard testimony from executives at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. It was a bit of a blame game. Sounds a lot like the dog ate my homework. Senator Sherrod Brown, chair of the Senate Banking Committee, turned to the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, Greg Becker, and told him that the executive had blamed pretty much everyone else for the bank's failure. The Fed, his employees, the board, even social media. It's hard to believe a 30-year bank executive and CEO for 12 years should have needed a roadmap from the regulators to find the obvious problems that needed to be fixed and weren't. So whose fault was it really? Lawmakers are attempting to unpack what went wrong in the regional banking crisis in March and how we can avoid a deeper crisis now and another crisis later. Economists, investors, and even our own anchors are debating it. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin with Becky Quick and our next interviewee. Our next guest uh, says this year's banking crisis is not over yet, though it's inappropriate to compare it right now, at least to the 2008 meltdown. Joining us uh, right now, Simon Johnson, professor at MIT, former chief economist at the IMF. He's the co-author of the new book, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Good morning to you. So not 2008, but what is it then? Well, we're about to find out, I think, when commercial real estate uh, goes through the, the presumed downturn. Um, it might have some resemblance to the 1980s, the savings and loans crisis, where relatively small financial institutions cause, cause larger systemic problems. Of course, that's why we're supposed to have prompt corrective action. But with Silicon Valley Bank right. and with First Republic, we didn't. So there's a you lot of tension. We there. didn't. What, so what would have been the right decision in your mind? Well, obviously, uh, earlier intervention by the supervisors addressing interest rate risk. This is right. very prominent after Silicon Valley Bank. They, they let it slide, and, and that was based on the, uh, the relaxation of regulation supervision that came out of the decision of Congress and the guidance that came from the very top of the Fed after 2018. How concerned are you about either other regional banks or community banks going under or becoming insolvent or, or being resolved, if you will, in the context of whatever you think the problems with commercial real estate office and everything else may turn out to be? I don't like to talk about specific institutions, right. but let me speak uh, broadly. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned. I think particularly because we don't have a transaction account guarantee, there's no protection of essential business payroll accounts. So what's happening among the people I know is that they're starting to shift their footing, put uh, open an account with one of the largest banks. Right. Maybe we can call them too big to fail now. Right. Um, and, and, and sort of hedging against there being further disruption in the smaller bank sector. I think the flightiness of, of deposits has increased substantially. Nobody quite knows who's going to take what hit when the next bank is in the line of well, fire. Was, we were talking to another guest earlier today, and, and I was arguing that the digitization of all of this has made the flight of deposits a risk that, that I think was unimaginable before. And how do you effectively assure, assure against that, except to effectively force people to keep a remarkable amount 
of deposits basically on hand at all times, which would actually have a deleterious effect on the rest of the economy in terms of credit. Yes, absolutely. I think the digitization, we learned this, has sped everything up. But the underlying vulnerabilities are classic classic vulnerabilities, uh, you know, the kinds of um, risks that Silicon So if Valley you were to guarantee the deposits, you think that, that solves the problem? For, for transaction accounts, not for yeah. all deposits, but for transaction accounts for business, then business doesn't have to say, oh, I might not be able to make payroll on Friday. Right. Let me put but my money, money with someone else. money is a fungible thing, don't you worry that people will sort of use these accounts in unusual ways in terms of claiming something's a payroll account? keep it insured like it's not it's 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 not an exact science and becomes very difficult to police that's absolutely true but the the FDIC does keep track of transaction accounts already. In 2008, they had an effective program that they put in place. They had one during the pandemic. You make it a temporary program, Andrew. You don't make right. it forever. And, and I think that without that kind of safety net, you, the business deposits are going to fly at, at, at first into trouble. Are you a long-term fan of having the number of banks we have in this country? Is that a good thing? Uh, is that a bad thing? I'm agnostic on the number of banks, but I like competition. I think competition is very good, very right. healthy. I think the problem is when some of the smaller banks go all in on a particular geography of commercial real estate, then there's right. going to be a reckoning. Where do you weigh in just in terms of the regulatory oversight? Obviously, the first problem would be with the executives at the bank. But should the Fed have picked up on this sooner? Can we guarantee they're going to be watching for this problem close, more closely next time? It, it feels like we're always regulating for the last crisis, not the next. This is a massive regulatory and supervisory failure. Maybe a wake-up call, so that might be useful, but the, the Dodd-Frank created a vice chair for regulation and supervision at the Fed to elevate supervision and, and regulation within the, the, the Fed ecosystem. So the, the legal responsibility was there, the political support was there, and, and what did the, the relevant people do? They backed away from regulating and supervising these, these mid-sized regional banks. And now we have a major problem. So that's a lesson from what we've heard, though, part of that was the messaging that was coming from Congress and other places saying, have a lighter touch, have a lighter regulatory touch. How do you keep that from happening, especially when you had Barney Frank himself lobbying to have these rules watered down because he was sitting on the boards of one of these banks? There is always a political cycle around regulation and supervision, and, and we just saw that in, in action. The job of the Fed is to be professional, to be objective, and to say, look, th there's a limit to how far we're going to go responsibly, particularly given the fact that interest rates are now low and we're going to have to raise at some point. They did say that for a long time, but there was a disconnect between the monetary policy part of the brain and the supervisory part of the brain. Absolutely. And that needs to be fixed by the Fed. I have a separate policy question. If you do believe that there's a number of banks that are going to run into trouble as a function of commercial real estate falling and, and where interest rates are, every, all, the whole, what would you do to get ahead of it now? Would you start resolving banks in advance? I would put the transaction account guarantee in place. I, I think the, the, the banks should be allowed to fail. I think having any part of the economy be too big or too complex or too connected to fail is a problem because that will lead to incentive issues. That will lead to taking more risks. That's very inappropriate and not suitable. With, it, with the transaction account guarantee, I think we would weather the commercial real estate. Can you layer AI into all of this? Uh, deep fakes, identity theft. That is going to be a very pointy end of, of how we experience AI, particularly in finance. Uh, we already have a big problem with identity theft. And it's going to get much fakes, more dramatic. The idea that, that you're, someone's going to fake a, of the phone number, the, the, the voice of the CEO, that's going to leave a voicemail for the CFO and say, please transfer X amount of money over here and they're going to actually do it. If I, if I send you an email, Andrew, that says, yes. please call me, and I give you my cell phone number, you should not call me and rely on uh, recognizing my voice to know that it's me. You should ask me for unique identifying information that only you and I know, something that was never digitized, like when did we last see each other, what did right. I have at lunch when, when, when we had lunch. That's what you need to, uh, to assure identity. Otherwise, it's all going to be, people are going to have a lot of identity theft, and, and they're going to lose seriously, including on the financial right. side, and that's not currently being regulated. Simon, that's it's great scary. to see you. It's a much longer <laughs> conversation. You must come on back. Congratulations on the book. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks.
Coming up, the morality of working from home. Elon Musk says it's wrong, but working moms, commuters, and plenty of others, they just don't see it that way. CNBC's John Fort has both sides of the argument and the data. Job postings allowing one or more days a week of remote work are most common in San Francisco, Boston, and New York. Miami and cities in the South, almost back to pre-pandemic remote work listings. Squawk Pod will be right back. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. It's Friday. It's Tesla CEO Elon Musk telling CNBC this week that workers returning to the office is a moral issue. It's like, it's like, it's like really, you're going to work from home and you're going to make everyone else who made your car come work, to the fa- work in the factory. You're going to make the people who make your food that gets delivered that they can't work from home. The, you know, the, the, the people that, that come fix your house, they, they can't work from home, but you can? Does that seem morally right? That's messed up. You see it as a moral issue? Yes. I mean, I see it more as and just it's, a, 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 it's, a, a... It's a productivity issue, but yeah. it's also a moral issue. Who wants to get off the moral high horse with the work from home? Um, because they're asking everyone else to not work from home while they do. This comes as Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn introduced a measure this month that would require federal workers to revert to pre-pandemic in-office work policies. So is remote work an ethical dilemma? John Fort is here to weigh in. What do you think, John? Well, Becky, first of all, happy Friday, a day later than usual. But no, it's not morally wrong for workers to want to work from home. My favorite thing about this, though, is that Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, is making an inequality argument. He says people who make cars, cook food, and repair houses can't work from home, so why should the laptop class feel entitled to? And I'm just saying, Elon, if we're drawing up a list of the morally questionable privileges in our society, remote options for working moms, nowhere near the top of the list. Far higher might be laws that allow billionaires to borrow against their unrealized stock gains and defer paying taxes while frontline workers have to rack up debt to make ends meet in a hyperinflationary economy. Or billionaires who will buy a social media company and then refuse to pay money the company owes vendors like landlords, event planners, and transportation providers. What office workers are pushing for is flexibility that saves them precious time. In Elon's case, flexibility means riding a private jet around to get work done, or what I'll call homing from work, sleeping in the office at Twitter or on the factory floor at Tesla. Restaurant workers can't do that, but still, flexibility isn't wrong. Knowledge workers stay home for their personal convenience. Couldn't that inconvenience their employers, the local businesses, everybody else who relies on it? Well, yeah, Becky, on the other hand, There are real moral problems with this work from home push. Let's take Elon Musk out of it because he's kind of a foil. Just look at what's best for teams, businesses, and communities. Research just a few weeks old from Harvard Business School shows there are divides opening up based on geography, type of job, and culture. Job postings allowing one or more days a week of remote work are most common in San Francisco, Boston, and New York. Miami and cities in the South, almost back to pre-pandemic remote work listings by job type, 
Finance, tech, and communications are most likely to offer remote options, especially if they're higher paying. And then there's culture. In automotive, the study found half of Honda's engineering jobs offered remote options. Tesla, not so much. So what's the likely impact? Well, in San Francisco, nearly a billion dollars could come out of the budget over the next six years from lost tax revenue from vacant offices, according to a city economist. Small businesses are getting gutted, too, to the tune of $3,500 per year per remote worker that they're not spending near the office. Young workers also get less benefit from shared knowledge. At a point, it's selfish. And like Elon said, wrong. Okay, let me, let me go on this. Andrew and I have been talking about this for a couple of days at this point. <laughs> but I, I will give you the morally wrong argument, take it out of it. But it's also infused in the other side of it, where you say, hey, you've got to come in because the communities here rely on it. You've got to come to the Starbucks that's based downtown. Well, what about all the people who've been working and going to a Starbucks near them in their own community back home? The reason a lot of workers don't want to come back is because it's a pain in the butt to get downtown to commute to do these things. You, it takes hours in some cases to do it. And by the way, when you get here, it's not all that nice. If you want people to come back, Make the city a little nicer in different places. And you can say that in San Francisco and all over the place. Make it so that people feel safer. That is true. It raises the argument. Both sides. What, are, what are cities for, right? And should uh, the, the working class have to move closer to the more privileged class in order to do those services? Right. Or do densely populated I, areas I just have say, a purpose? I, think, especially? I think there's a that's a practical issue. That's, that's a genuine practical issue. It's, it's, you have to come save our I, city. I, what I just don't know is whether it's a moral issue. Look, I live in New York City. I pay taxes to New York City. I haven't, I haven't fled to Florida. I haven't fled to Austin, Texas, by the way, which is where everybody yeah, Andrew, flees I, I don't for tax New York purposes. City and I commute in here and right. I pay taxes to New York City. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I don't get to live here. And so you can decide the whether these are moral issues or practical issues. And so yeah. the maybe idea... Sub, maybe the it's suburbs, a moral issue to say Maybe the suburbs themselves are immoral. But then the... <laughs> but then the right. All I'm saying is, is there... Is this, a, is this actually a morality question and I think you raised it in the first part of your part of your your section you know everybody gets paid differently you know some people fly in the middle seat other people fly in the front I, of the plane say, other people fly in their own plane I say, other people are being treated terribly some people are treated you know beautifully All, is that moral I mean there's right. a market but I will give you both take the moral question out of both of it you're right you're both right on that count it, moral is silly but I think it's a moral argument to say that everybody has to come into the city to support it. If you can get, and, and, and what I ultimately come down, what bothers me is this privileged attitude that you think, hey, from now on, I don't have to come in. It's my prerogative to be able to work from home because I can do the job from here. No, it's your employer's prerogative as to whether or not they think you should come in because they think there are other things that could help in the workplace that make you want to do that. If, if, if you want to cut a deal with your employer, go to it. But it's a deal that has to be cut. I don't think the reality but then this can goes be if, to I, the question, if I can I mean, do my job from then home, this I should goes never to the question of taxes. I mean, we, we have talked for a long time about the morality of taxes and the question of what fair taxes are, what, what taxes should be fair, how you support a city, how you support a country, uh, how you support I the think, services behind yes, the country. But I mean, one there's of the a most, lot of things here. One of the most compelling arguments is that younger workers actually could stand to learn from mid-career and more right. experienced workers who they themselves individually, the, the older workers can be very productive at home, but they're not going to teach anybody. Right. So, Again, right. that's, and, but so, that's, and that's an agreement you cut with your employer. And if they want you coming in, that's part of your work. And they, should, you they should pay you for it. I'll they should pay the, you more I'll give you a moral argument. That's a moral argument, though. You could say that the more senior person has a moral responsibility that's, that's what to help I'm train the next generation. I could, I could get behind that, by the way. And by the way, it's ultimately up to your employer. If you can cut a deal with the employer, 
look, if you're a smart employer and there's a talented person who needs the flexibility because they're a working from home mom or they have other issues, something that you cut the deal with them. Right. Do it. And but should people who come in and train the next generation and share the, should they get paid more? Just if for, you, just yeah, for if, coming if in? You get, I think you should get paid more to commute it, to come in. Because it's a cost on top of but the look, time. But look, I would tell you the well, teachers should get paid more. I agree. I mean, it's, I think it's gross that the teachers don't get paid more. But, we, but here we are in this, and this is what's happened with a market-based economy. We talk about the markets well, all day. It's a market-based economy. And I think we have a lot of big questions to ask. And you can read this argument <laughs> in the On the Other Hand newsletter. Gets you easy access to the On the Other Hand poll also on LinkedIn every week. You can weigh in as we have been here. Let me know which side you agree with more. Here's some interesting results from last week's topic. Will artificial intelligence create or kill more middle class jobs? 60% said kill, 40% create, guys. What do the robots say? <laughs> they probably tweaked the poll in the background. So, John, thank you. Thank you. I think kill is right. And that is Squawk Pod for today from the totally moral work from home closet slash voiceover booth. Tell us what you think about this hot button issue. We're on Twitter, which is owned by Elon Musk. Our handle is at Squawk CNBC. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. That's it. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.